Welcome. The following presentation from Answers in CME is part of an educational activity titled Risk-Adapted Treatment Algorithms in Myelofibrosis, Optimizing Patient Outcomes with JAK Inhibitors. To access the full program and supporting materials, please visit the activity URL in the episode description. This activity is supported by an educational grant from GSK. Hello, my name is Ruben Mesa, and today I'll discuss how JAK inhibitors fit into the treatment armamentarian for patients with myelofibrosis. Now to begin, let's first talk about the unmet needs and treatment goals in patients with myelofibrosis. We've made tremendous progress, but we know overall there still can be poor outcomes for high-risk patients. Our therapies clearly have an impact, but they are not curative medical therapies. There's no cure other than stem cell transplantation, and there are many limitations on broad utilization of that therapy. Anemia can be very difficult to manage, and patient quality of life can be negatively impacted. Now, as we think about developing our treatment goals for one particular patient, patients can have difficulties in a variety of different parameters, in symptoms or in splenomegaly or in cytopenias or in risk of progression. So with any individual patient, we try to think, are we trying to avoid thrombosis or bleeding? Are we trying to improve symptoms if they were present to begin with? Is there splenomegaly and is it problematic? Are there low counts and we wish to improve them? Are we trying to increase overall or progression-free survival? Looking at the big picture, managing these patients requires an accurate diagnosis, the assessment of survival, risk, and disease burden. Then we develop our treatment plan. Are we going to go to frontline medical therapy or potentially consider a stem cell transplantation? Then we can jump to second-line medical therapy. If they progress, do we go to a transplant? Or if they move toward acute leukemia, do we manage them in that fashion? All throughout, we're providing key supportive care. Now, our therapies have evolved, and they're on the basis of having an impact on the JAK-STAT pathway. We recognize that there are three main mutations, the JAK2V617F, calreticulin, MPL, in the majority of patients with a smaller group that are triple negative. It's important to note that all three of these mutations activate the JAK-STAT pathway in different ways, but downstream, they're all impacting JAK-STAT. And the JAK2 inhibitors that we have, of which there are four, all inhibit the JAK2 pathway. We have the approved ruxolitinib that inhibits JAK1 and JAK2, indicated in high-risk and intermediate-risk MF. Fedratinib approved, it's an inhibitor of JAK2 and is approved for intermediate and high-risk. Pacritinib approved and hits in addition to JAK2, IREC1, and now we know even ACVR1 and is for individuals with low platelets, under 50 or maybe even under 100. And mamalotinib inhibits JAK1, JAK2, and ACVR1 and is not yet approved. So that acts a little bit of a basis for the rest of our discussion on treating patients with myelofibrosis. Next, let's talk about how to assess risk in patients with myelofibrosis. In this session, we're going to talk patient and disease-related factors that drive treatment decisions. Let's discuss why risk stratification is key in myelofibrosis. As we look at risk stratification in MF, there are multiple different scoring tools available to us, ranging from the DIPSS, the MIPSS, and others, and we'll get into these in a moment. Now, in terms of treatment, it's important to note that for the NCCN guidelines, they realize that although there's multiple scores, Patients predominantly can be separated into lower risk or higher risk as it relates to treatment decisions. It doesn't mean the scores are any less valid for predicting survival, but how do we utilize them? 
My preferred tool is the MIPSS. I think this one is the most holistic in that it includes molecular features, laboratory features such as cytopenias, symptoms, degree of reticulin fibrosis, and others. It can help to stratify prognosis, but it does incorporate the molecular features that are key. It's a complex score to calculate, although there is a website one can go to MIPSS 70 to be able to plug in the variables and get that information. Why the MIPSS 70? Well, when you have the luxury of the additional information, it certainly can help to stratify. The DIPSS is probably the most used globally because you only need in the most basic age, blood counts, and symptoms, which anyone can obtain without the expense or technical needs of NGS sequencing or others. And here again, we can help to stratify individuals. Now, as we use lower or higher risk as kind of our differentiation point for non-transplant patients, lower risk patients that are asymptomatic, we still potentially might watch and wait for their disease. Patients who are symptomatic, we may consider medical intervention and most certainly supportive care. Higher risk patients, the stratification really then are platelets. Individuals with a platelet count less than 50 are either appropriate for pacritinib or stem cell transplantation. Patients above 50,000, stem cell transplant is always a consideration, depending upon the right individual, or it's frontline therapy for dradnib or ruxolidinib. Clearly, with the base of all of these patients receiving adequate supportive care. Next, let's talk about the clinical implications of the latest efficacy data for JAK inhibitors in the treatment of myelofibrosis. So we've seen that JAK inhibitors are a recommended option for patients who are not transplant candidates. Let's look at the efficacy of these therapies. Our cornerstone and the drug that's been approved the longest is ruxolidinib, approved on the basis of the comfort studies, where compared to placebo and comfort one or best available therapy in comfort two, we saw clear superiority in terms of improvements in spleen and symptoms. And over time, in pooled analysis, improvements in survival likely because of less death from comorbidities, less likelihood of progression, and significant impact. So that remains our cornerstone. Fedratinib, now approved since 2019, approved on the basis of the Jakarta 1 and Jakarta 2 studies that showed compared to placebo, it was superior for improvement of spleen and symptoms. And now, as we saw in updates from ASH 2022 from more recent phase three trials in the Freedom Study, both that continued profile of efficacy, but also reassurance in terms of safety. Pacritinib, now approved since February of 2022, approved for individuals with a plate account less than 50,000, great efficacy compared to either best available therapy or placebo in the prior studies, and updates from this year's ASH showing inhibition of ACVR1 and ability to also help to improve anemia. So an important option in these patients. And finally, mamelodinib on the cusp of approval, Simplify 1, showing non-inferiority for the spleen compared to ruxolidinib head-to-head and improvements in anemia. More recent data in Momentum, now with the ASH update, second-line symptomatic patients, anemic, showing superiority now through week 48 for symptom improvement, for reduction in splenomegaly, and for improvements in anemia. So very exciting. Finally, key ASH updates, many combinations, whether it be pegylinofuran-alpha-2A, parsiclisib, nevitoclax, palabresib, ceramadolin, 
whether alone or in combination. Exciting updates and efficacy at ASH. Very excited about the new options to come in our base of four great JAK inhibitors. Next, let's talk about how we can maximize safety for these JAK inhibitor therapies. What about safety issues with JAK inhibitors and what impact do these therapies have on anemia and MF? Let's take a look. Well, first, as we look at adverse events of note with the JAK inhibitors, they are slightly different agents and they have slightly different profiles. Let me start off at a very high level. One, they all have the potential to cause some degree of cytopenias, although less certainly in pacritinib and mamelodinib with those with thrombocytopenia or anemia but it certainly is not zero in either of these groups either. Two, there can be GI side effects in all of the non-RUX therapies. Ruxolitinib, there can be weight gain and an increase in non-melanoma skin cancers. Pedratinib, we need to be mindful of Wernicke's encephalopathy and decreases in thiamine that need to be monitored. Pacritinib, we need to be mindful of cardiovascular events with people with marked cytopenias. Some would ask with up to four JAK inhibitors, are there any absolute contraindications? And at the current time, I would say no. There's a different safety profile between them. But now with the addition of pacritinib, we really have the full spectrum of individuals who are covered. If you run into a toxicity issue with one, any of the four agents potentially could be a second-line therapy or subsequent to those that had a toxicity with the other. So for example, in ruxolitinib, if you have difficulties with skin cancers, a switch to other JAK inhibitors sometimes can help to resolve that increase risk. Now, I mentioned that anemia can be common, particularly with ruxolitinib and fedradinib. Typically, dose modification or other agents are added to try to mitigate this. Updates from ASH 2022 from the Freedom Study show, again, GI side effects being most prevalent, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, although I find in my practice, if we prophylaxis can see, it can be very manageable. There were mitigation strategies against Wernicke's encephalopathy that have worked well with monitoring thiamine or replacement when appropriate and appropriate therapy for GI side effects. Now, mamalodinib might have a beneficial impact on anemia and help people become transfusion independent. We've seen that compared to danazol. And we also presented that patients that had switched over from ruxolinib to mamalodinib from the simplified trial showed a very nice improvement in their hemoglobin and rates of transfusion independence. So I tend to look at both the side effects in terms of hematologic and non-hematologic as I manage patients with MF on JAK inhibitors. Next, let's talk about how we can optimize treatment selection for JAK inhibitor therapies in myelofibrosis. Let's wrap up the program with a discussion about other treatment considerations. As we think about supportive care for patients with myelofibrosis, first I have to remind everyone this is a chronic disease that clearly can be fatal, but patients typically live two to three years to many years, so we need to be mindful of them. Are they needing transfusions and how do we support that? How do we prevent bleeding? In individuals that have had huge transfusion requirements, is our chelation therapy beneficial? Do we need to consider zoster vaccination for those on JAK inhibition, particularly getting ruxolitinib? I do tend to use that. It's probably more common for polycythemia vera, but very reasonable for those with MF, also because of their age. Growth factor support, less likely, but sometimes an ESA can be helpful along with ruxolitinib for anemia. Individuals with very aggressive disease with hyperleukocytosis, white counts of greater than 50 or 100,000, sometimes will benefit from a little additional hydroxyurea added along into the mix. 
Now, managing patients with MF who have anemia, there are NCCN guidelines that, again, suggest for an EPO level less than 500, the addition of an ESA or a clinical trial. And if above, the addition of Danazol that was based on a clinical trial that I had published before with colleagues or the IMIDS. Lespatercept is in clinical trials, potentially try to improve anemia for these individuals. It can be available off-label. On the future horizon, Mamelodinum may become approved later in 2023, potentially with improvements in anemia, along with the splenomegaly and symptoms. Multiple of the new combinations may also help to have an impact with anemia, lespatercept being most likely amongst them. Many additional drugs with alternative mechanisms of action will be out there. At the current time, we know that our agents, the three that we have available, plate account is something you need to be the most mindful of. Ruxolitinib and fedratinib for those with a plate account greater than 50,000, pacritinib below 50,000 may also have a benefit with anemia. So some key take-home messages from this entire program. One, you should have a sense of hope and progress in MF. Multiple new agents, likely four jack inhibitors as a base. Drugs with new mechanisms of action that are going to be woven in in a range of different circumstances from frontline to second line. Great progress in MF. Exciting data from ASH 2022. Hopefully further progress in 2023. Thank you for listening. Please visit the activity URL in the episode description to view all program materials, complete the post-test, and get a certificate.